Hello, and welcome to another episode of Theology-ish, your one-stop shop for all things theology, biblical studies, philosophy, church history, and otherwise. I am one of your hosts, Ryan, and I am joined today, as always, by our wonderful co-host, William. Yo. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing good. Sweet. So, uh, what's, uh, what's the haps? What's poppin', my dude? Not that language. No? No. You don't, uh, vibe with my new, uh, urban vernacular? You're, you're giving off strong, like, youth pastor vibes, trying to get hip with the Gen Z kids, you know? (laughs) And it's not working out great. (laughs) Yo, kids, Jesus for real be bussin', no cap. It, no cap, bussin' for real, for real. For um, real, for real, man. Yeah. Ain't even playing. Anyway. Uh, as <laughs> as someone who almost got a, uh, a degree in youth ministries, this this hurts. Yeah. <laughs> this hurts a lot. Yeah, that's uh, not as much as the student debt would have hurt with that degree. And that's true. Job prospects it would have afforded you. That's very true. You. Anyway, uh, like Ryan said, he's Ryan, I'm William, and today we are going to uh, do a little revision. Um, Our first episode, we titled it, What is Theology? And we talked about theology... Kinda. Only a little. We ended up talking primarily about the history of the church and situating that theological developments within the history of the church which is the history of everything else. So we ended up talking about about 2,000 years of history for a little over an hour and relatively little theology. So today we thought we would do uh, What is Theology Part 2 and focus on theology on theology and answering that question, what is it? So. Yes. Ryan. Yes, William. Why don't you tell me? Well, what what is theology? So, for those of you who have stuck around this long from the first episode, you might recall at the very end of that episode we actually asked that question and that's kind of how we closed out. Yeah, the and, the one part of the episode yes. where we really talked about theology and specifically. What William you had to say was was a bit more vague than what I had to say, but what you had to say is that a theologian is someone who prays and and is a follower of Christ, and that's about as deep as that got. Um, partially due to a lack of time to touch on it. Yeah. What I had to say in that episode, and what I will reiterate here, is theology in broad terms is the study and literation of the Christian faith and and what what that means. It is the idea of picking apart Christ and what he had to say and what people who talked about him had to say and about 2,000 years of church history now and what all those people had to say and taking those things and saying, which of those things is the most right? Which of those is the most correct? Which of those is the most in line with Holy Scripture? And how can we apply that to ourselves today? And that, in very broad terms, I think, is a decent description of theology. In equally broad terms, but slightly more succinct, theology is the study of God. 
Um, it comes from the Greek words for God, theos, and study. Ology. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that's that's not the the uh, I forget the right word, but it, it's it means the study of. You find it at the end of biology, the study of life, and uh, geology, the study of rocks and the earth and all the other ologies that there are. Um, so theology is the study of God, and there are a couple ways to go about doing that. The first way to go about trying to study God is to look at Holy Scripture and to see what it says, which is easier said than done because there are things in Holy Scripture that are confusing and difficult to understand that we have to wrestle with. Um, and even the parts that are not confusing or difficult to understand, you still have to uh, parse it out and dig into it and see what it says. What, what, what's difficult or confusing about Jesus getting baptized to fulfill all righteousness, William? Uh, the that's entirety pretty of that. clear cut. All of that's confusing to me. <laughs> you might just be smarter than I am, but... <laughs> That much isn't I, true, I but... I am confused. Um, so, yeah, but looking at Holy Scripture to try and figure out how God be is sometimes referred to as biblical theology, uh, which is technically... I th it's a related discipline, but when someone says they're a theologian... They don't necessarily mean that they're a biblical theologian. The other way to do theology is, what's the right way to say this? I suppose through philosophical first principles. So you, uh, through uh, philosophical considerations and oftentimes syllogisms, which is a way of thinking where you say, if A than B, therefore C, right? So okay. if God is good, then God wants humanity to flourish. Therefore, God will behave in a way that is conducive with human flourishing. Yeah. Right? That kind of thinking through it in kind of a word math is a good way to think of it. That's another way of doing theology. However, <laughs> syllogisms and purely philosophical theology can be very, very confusing and very difficult to understand. And if your philosophical first principles going into it are not correct, can lead you to some wrong places. So you might say something like, um, God is good and therefore wants me to be happy. Therefore, God ought to give me a BMW car, right? Naturally. And like, mm, I don't know about that, buddy. I, I, I don't think God... Are you sure? Yeah, I, I don't think he has to want to give you a BMW just because he is good. What about the McLaren? No. I mean, at least. No. <laughs> No, God doesn't uh, 
have to do that. So both of those are two different ways of doing theology, and they both have their merits, and they are best done when they are done together, right? Some of the best theologians that have ever lived and written have done both of those. Um, So they'll look at Holy Scripture and the things that it says, and then through logical, deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning, they will parse out the things that Holy Scriptures tell us about God. For example, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 has a part where it's God speaking, and he talks about his intentions to punish the people of Israel if they do not adhere to the law in the future, right? And he's kind of way, God kind of weighs his options of what to do to punish Israel in the future. And he says that uh, he'll send in a foreign nation to destroy them and destroy them utterly if they do not adhere to the law. But then he says, well, if I do that, the foreign nation will look at Israel and they will say that their God was unable to protect them. So then he says, so I'm not going to do that. I will send in a nation to almost destroy them, but I will preserve some of them. Which, if we take that and parse out its logical conclusions of what it, if this is truly what God is saying, it seems to be the case that God knows the future, right? But also, he knows what the future could be, right? He doesn't just know the future 100% sure of how it will be, he also knows the future for how it could be. Um, right? Which seems like a given. Yeah. But if we're going to say things about God, we ought to be able to back those things yeah. up by either Holy Scripture or philosophical first principles. Yeah, because it's easy for me to say that kind of comes with the whole omnipotence thing. Omniscience. Omniscience. Thank you. I always get those two mixed up. Yeah. Really not great about that. Omniscience. Omniscience. Kind of comes with the whole omniscience thing. Um Right, but we have to establish the omniscience before... Yeah, and not only that, you have to assume that whomever you are writing or speaking to might not know that to begin with. Just because I know God is omniscient doesn't mean that Joe Schmo down the corner does, you know? and, and we know God is omniscient because of these kinds of things that we find in Holy Scripture. And we have to kind of parse those things out to get to the confessions of things like omniscience or omnipresence or um, omnipotence. To get to the omnis, we have to pull those out of Holy Scripture because it's there. It's there in the Scriptures for us to take and to make as as a confession about God if we look for them and parse them out. Um. A better, perhaps a better example than the Omnis, because the Omnis are pretty blatantly there on the surface. Um, Trinitarian confession is everywhere in Holy Scripture. If you look for it in the right ways, right? You can find the Trinity in the very first chapter of the Bible. And yes. 
arguably. Um, and if you argue against that, I'll fight you personally. Th- this this is where um, the philosophy and the syllogisms come in handy because you can point to certain passages and say, "Yep, this is a Trinitarian confession in the Book of Isaiah," but you you need to be able to parse that out and drag it out of the text because it's there, but you have to be able to pull it out and show how it is there. Yeah. Because A and B, therefore C, right? Yeah. You follow So me? that's so roughly theology, right? And perhaps some of the better ways to approach it. So what then is a theologian is my question for you. And I know last episode your answer was someone who prays, which is not a bad answer. That's a fine answer. But I, I don't know that many people in, you know, my local church down the street would call themselves theologians necessarily. So what would you call a theologian? Well, they should call themselves theologians mm. as Christians. Um, the thing is, we are all theologians. It's just that some theologians are better than others um, <laughs> at uh, the task of theology. Um, theologians are those who try to study God, right? Okay. Because theology is the study of God, and if you are a theologian, you are actively trying to understand the way that God be. Um, For some Christians, and by some I really mean most, it is sufficient for us to say, you know, Pastor Steve says that God is omniscient, that he is omnipotent, and that he is omnipresent, that God is good, that God loves us, and that there are three persons but one God, and those persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's sufficient for you. You can hear that and go, cool, and you are perfectly happy with that. And I envy you, because that would be really (laughs) so much easier um, to just have that kind of... uh, it sure, acceptance. It sure would. <laughs> yeah. And then there are others who are like, okay, God is omnipresent. Cool. Where where are you getting that? Why, why do you think that God be everywhere? So then they end up looking to Holy Scripture or using philosophical thirst principles to try and understand what kind of being God must be to see if the kind of being God must be is omnipresent. Um, Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, I I think that makes perfect sense. So uh, theology is very similar to, when done well, it's very similar to uh, philosophy. It's very similar to um, other logical pursuits. Uh. But there, there's always going to be a little bit of a, a mysticalness to it on some level, which, you know, when we think of a theologian, we probably have a mental image of some old professor with a beard and he's wearing a tweed jacket. With some English dude. Some English guy. He's got a pipe and he's oh. like, yes, God is quite that way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course, God quite must. Yes, quite. Indubitably. Indeed. Yes, quite. 
Um, <laughs> that's kind of how yeah. we mentally imagine a theologian. And to an extent, that's true. But if you are a Christian theologian, at the very least, there is an understanding that God is personal, right? The Christian God is a personal God, but we can, as individuals, have personal experiences and interactions with, and that is almost the very definition of uh, quote-unquote mystical. So Christian theology always has a quote-unquote mystical component to it, right? Because we don't believe in the... uh, the unmoved mover of Aristotle who starts the universe and then just kind of stays in his corner not doing anything else, right? We believe in a God who yeah. is involved in history and responds to prayer and um, sat at a table across from men, unlike not unlike you and I, and shared meals with them. In the person of Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, he's, um, he's not Cthulhu, this slumbering yeah. god in the ocean. Or, yeah, he's not this uh, unknowable, inaccessible thing like uh, Aristotle's unmoved mover. Is. Yeah, he's he's a knowable, seeable, graspable being. Yes. In, in his own sense. Yes. Um, so... Yeah, um, and theology has developed in, to some extent, over the history of the church. Um, That is not to say that the Christian confession has developed. The Christian confession has more or less stayed the same from the beginning, um, and it's best summarized in the either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed that uh, we believe in. God, our Father, Maker of heaven and earth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The confession hasn't changed, but the way that we discuss it and the way that we explain it has, and it has changed out of necessity because occasionally we get these people that are really annoying that we call heretics who end up teaching something contrary to what the church has always taught. And when they start teaching something contrary to what the church has always taught, something like uh, there was someone called Jesus, but he didn't – he wasn't really a human. He just looked like one. He was actually a spirit. That's the docetist heresy. Well, the Christians have always taught and always believed that Jesus was fully God and fully man, and he truly did have a body. So now we have to have someone explain – oftentimes in syllogisms or at the very least in very clear kind of philosophical language that Jesus was fully a man and fully God, right? A little later on, we have uh, the Sibelian heresy where they believe that God was the father in the Old Testament, that he then shows himself as Jesus at the time of the New Testament, and now he shows himself as the Holy Spirit. That's called Sibelianism or modalism. 
That's also a heresy. Not a fan of that one, no, personally. Bad. That shouldn't be. Real bad. It's wrong. It's very so, wrong. When someone starts teaching that, now you have to have someone who the church has always believed in the Trinity. The church has always taught the Trinity that the Father, Son, and Spirit are co-eternal, that they are three distinct persons, but one God. These are things that the church has always taught and always believed. But now we very suddenly have to articulate very clearly, oftentimes in syllogisms or in very systematic, logical language, why we think that, right? So the Christian confession has not changed, but the theology that the church has had to do over time has based off of the heresies that have cropped up or just um, genuine questions by the faithful about things like, um, should we... If you get baptized and then you find out that the priest who baptized you was actually secretly a pagan the whole time, does your baptism count? Mm. And the answer that the church comes to through theology is yes. Yeah. Um, Your baptism would still count because ultimately— It's the spirit that does the work, not the baptizer. Yeah, the efficacy of baptism is through Christ, not— yeah. Through the administer of yeah, baptism. that makes sense. Right. So when these kinds of things crop up, the church then has to respond, and we have to respond by thinking through it, and that thinking through it is theology. And theology, I will say, is not something we have stopped doing and never will be something we stop doing. Uh, I look at the state of the world today and go, there are churches out there who say, it's okay for you to be homosexual. It's okay for you to marry someone of the same biological gender as you. Or, hey man, it's okay to, I don't know, become transgender, just, just because that's a hot topic at the moment. Things like this, and... There are certain groups within, I, I put this in very broad air quotations, groups within the church who, who claim these things are okay. And as a result, the church is now having to respond to that and to pick apart biblically and spiritually why these things do or do not be. And we're still doing that today. And that is still theology. And, uh... Yeah, so we we have to address these concerns as they crop up. It's kind of like a a commingling of mental and spiritual whack-a-mole. As man, that's a way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> these things come up over time. Well, uh, more recently, there have been questions about whether or not we ought to go to church in person. Right? Mm. Do you have to go to church in person? Because people were going to telecommunication church. COVID. Yeah, because of COVID. So they were just watching on TV or live streaming on their computer or whatever. And they were like, and now we've got people that are like, eh, it's fine if I just That's good enough. keep doing this, right? I'll just watch in my underwear and it's all well and good. And there are lots of churches, my own church included, that live stream their services so people can Might just as watch well. on Facebook. We still do that. And is that okay? Can you just not go? And that's and a whole other discussion for another day. In this paper, I will argue 
that the answer is no. You you need to physically go to church. As, as with other issues, I think this is a little bit like, you know, the Eucharist or baptism in that there can be exceptions, right? If you are bedridden in a hospital at the end of your days, I think listening yeah, but is if, fine. If, if you can reasonably yeah. make it to the service in person, you ought to. But that's that's a uh, whole but, other discussion. But that's neither here nor there. Yeah. That, that's the sort of thing that we would potentially now address and it by looking at holy scripture by looking at the traditions of the church by looking at the teachings of um good christians throughout history and we would look back on these things and marry that with philosophical logical reasoning and syllogisms to try and parse out should you go to church in person and I think that if we were to do that, we would quite simply come to uh, the answer is yes, which the church has always gone to church in person. Yeah. That has always been the Christian thing. But not until recently have we had to start wondering, right? And when something takes the church 2,000 years to question, that ought to give you pause. Yeah. Not it, to say it's immediately wrong, but, but a, it ought to give you pause. Yeah, it's a good indication that perhaps the the traditional thing is the more right thing. And granted, we didn't have uh, Facebook Live in the year 100 no. to live stream the services then. I fear for what the world would look like if we did. Yeah, Um. but the, you know... That's that's enough of that particular <laughs> rabbit trail. Um, I, I think we've said enough on that you should go to church in person. Yes. Um, now, a lot of Christians, especially uh, Protestant Christians, especially Protestant Christians who are very faithful and are kind of like that group of people that I mentioned earlier who Pastor Steve says that God is omnipotent, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, that there are three persons but one God, and that God is good, and that's good for... That's that's sufficient. For those people, a lot of them have an idea of the theologian, where that bearded, tweed-wearing British man with the pipe, where he's actually an atheist, right? They think of theologians as, like, bad, right? Yeah. And uh, when I told people at the church that I went to in Georgia, when I went to church in Georgia, because I lived there— when I told them that I was going off to major in biblical and theological studies, some of them were legitimately concerned for, like, my eternal soul. They were like, oh, oh, you, you really want to go talk to them them liberal professors there? Buying yourself a one-way ticket to eternal damnation, friend. Yeah, they, but not quite that strongly. <laughs> but, but they were like, hey, um, are you sure— are you, are you sure you want to do this? Because they, they had a relatively simple faiths, 
and it made them uncomfortable that there were people who would uh, pick into that and try and parse it out. And on some level, that is fair. There are those who are called theologians who are um, not faithful. Um, I'm reading a book by one of them right now. Uh, and, well, not at this moment, but, you know, other yeah. other times when yes. I sit down to read the book, I'm reading the book. But I'm reading a book right now by someone who uh, styles themselves as a theologian and would be acknowledged by the quote-unquote academy as a theologian, but they are not a faithful person, and it's quite clear from their writings that they are not a faithful person. Um, but... The fact that there are unfaithful people who participate in theology ought not scare us away from the good that is to be had in theology uh, any more than the fact that there are leaders in the church who um, engage in sexual misconduct should scare us away from being in contact with leaders in the church – um, the fact that there are unfaithful people who are styled as theologians and recognized as theologians doesn't mean that theology is bad. Is that is that fair? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean... Have, have you encountered that, Ryan, where someone's like, theology, oh, you don't want to... Oh, sure, oh. and this can apply to the faith at large even, to the church at large, not even necessarily just theologians in that whole realm, but you see people... Oh, the church, the, the Baptists, you sure you want to hang out with the Baptists or oh, the, the Presbyterians? You sure about that one? Oh, the Presbyterians. It's, and Bless their hearts. Yeah, that's that's not a thing specific to this, this bubble within the church, but it's certainly present around this bubble within the church, um, which is unfortunate because when you really think about it, Jesus was a theologian. And not just a theologian, he was the theologian to end all theologians. He was the perfect theologian. And as, as brothers and sisters who are called to be Christ-like, that inherently means we ourselves are called to be theologians to the best of our ability. And for some people, that may look like a more simple faith. That may be people who aren't all that interested in doing you know, even what we're doing right now with this podcast, not that this is the most in-depth or, or brain-tickling thing out there in the realm of theology. Brain-tickling. I, I like That's, that phrase. Yeah, but, you know, there are certainly people in the faith who would look at our podcast and go, why would anyone want to do that? It's true. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that's that's wrong for them, but yeah, we are all called to be part of theology. And, you know, the body is made of many parts. Um, to borrow some phraseology from Paul, is the hand supposed to look at the foot and say, oh, man, I wish I w was that, or the foot ought to be like me, or whatever. If that were to happen, the body wouldn't be able to function. Um, and there are those in the body who have a simple faith, and it is sufficient for them, the Pastor Steve says, and what they care about is um, what percentage of their paycheck 
is reasonable for them to dedicate to charity and how should they treat the homeless person that they encounter on their way to work and what should they do about the neighbor that they have a, a beef with and the answer is to eat that beef Oh, Ryan. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I guess you could make a, like a sandwich with it or, or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, the proverbial <laughs> beef that you have with your neighbor. And, and that's the, the kind of faith that they have. They, they, they're looking for something very, very practical. And that's good. And it is to the benefit of the body that there are people like that. And it is also to the benefit of the body that there are people who are willing to dive in and say, why does the Eucharistic confession – and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, why don't those line up perfectly? The body of the church needs people who are willing to say, do I have to get dunked for my baptism to be legitimate, or is it okay to sprinkle water over me? We need that because at some point, someone who is faithful is going to ask and they're going to need an answer. Or someone who is not faithful is going to ask in the hopes of getting an answer. And if they don't get one, they will. it will be to the shame of the church because the church has an answer. Um, th there's not a question you could ask that a theologian a thousand years ago didn't already spend a lot of time writing a very long book about. Um, and... We ought to be able to to rise to those challenges and, and answer those questions yeah. better than we do. Um, and it's worth mentioning we're we're not saying this to uh, boost our own egos or put ourselves up on a, a pedestal. I mean, or I'm, I'm cool with putting myself on a pedestal. I'm, um, I'm great. <laughs> you might be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, um, I'm kidding. But you know, we're uh, this this podcast for us is is in very many ways a passion project. You know, we we. We literally started this because we just happen to have a lot of conversations like this in our private life. And I, gosh, about a month or two ago, just came up to William and said, hey, what if we did that but on the internet for other people to listen to? And he went, yeah, sure, that sounds fun. And here we are. We're not doing this because we expect people to listen to what we have to say or change their minds, regardless if we're right or not. And... You know, if if something comes out of that, all the better. If someone does listen and go, that that makes a lot of sense, and now I believe in Jesus too, or that makes a lot of sense, and now I understand this thing better than I did an hour ago. Awesome. But also, if we got zero listeners on a weekly basis and literally no one listened, I would still be doing this because the conversations that we have and what we're talking about is beneficial for me. And I would also hope beneficial for William. Um, so all that to say, this this is not us trying to gloat about ourselves or look how smart we are and how yeah, yeah, we're but, serving that part of the body as these theologians or what. This is this is for fun. This is a passion project. But that is important that we have people like that within the body. Yeah, and like so. The book that I'm reading right now that is by a quote-unquote theologian who 
is not faithful. I won't mention the name of the book, and I won't mention the name of the author, um, because they're both godless and no one should read it. Um, mm. <laughs> that was a deep cut. <laughs> Bro, I, when we're not recording, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. tell you more. Do warn um, me. Man, <laughs> it's... Oh, golly. Anyway, um, this book was written in the late 90s, okay? And I also recently read a book that I will say the name of and I will say the author of. It's called Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. What a great name. He He's a great thinker and, and author and theologian. Um, in... Chesterton's book. It's less than 200 pages. And in less than 200 pages, he he wrote in like the late 1900s, early 20th century. Everything that he wrote well over 100 years ago addresses and surpasses at, by leaps and bounds this other book that is significantly longer than Chesterton's book. Um, and there's a lot of value in that because someone could read this more recent godless book and they would walk away going, he makes some really good points. I reckon this Christianity thing isn't really what it's cracked up to be. But all they would have to do is spend a long afternoon reading Chesterton and they would find themselves most likely convinced that that other book was wrong. So we, we need theologians who are able to dig into these things and uh, talk about them and through careful, systematic logic and reasoning and biblical interpretation and uh, the contemplative spiritual life marrying those things to come to uh, – reasonable articulations of the Christian confession. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I have found personally that through the spiritual life and through uh, reading Holy Scripture and being immersed in Christianity, there are things that I have found myself being having conviction of and believing and it wasn't until I started to dig into theology that I was able to put words to those convictions and that I was able to say what it was I believed because someone else explained the thing that I was feeling deep inside, you know? Um, I don't know if you've found that experience too where you believe the uh, yeah. thing and you can't explain it, but then you read someone else and you're like, yes. Absolutely. And – you know, that's the thing. That's not what this podcast is. This isn't us coming up with new ways to think about things or new ideas or presenting things that haven't been talked about already. This is an opportunity for us to talk about the people who are much smarter than us and read the things that they wrote and talk about the ideas that they have presented and bring those to, into the to the spotlight, hopefully a little bit. So that not only you listen to us talk about it and what we think about it, but that you also go out and partake in that yourself. Because as much as we can talk about it all day, what I think is invaluable by comparison is going out and 
doing it yourself, reading these things, listening to these things. Um, we're, we're not unique thinkers. We are simply commentators on what has already been presented. And I have zero desire to be a unique thinker. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say anything new because if I'm saying something new, then I'm deviating from orthodoxy. Um, and reading theologians helps to uh, keep me in line because it's if you spend time thinking about like I don't know what's God's relationship to time like you might come to an orthodox conclusion which is that God exists outside of time and he's able to perceive past present and future simultaneously um some of the best theologians describe that as like a man sitting on a hill watching a parade i believe boethius yes describes it like yes that, that would be correct yeah so you have that kind of idea. But if you're just trying to understand how God relates to time and you do it on your own without looking to theologians, without looking to people who are smarter and admittedly holier than you are, um, and by holier than you, I mean they are more spiritually mature. If you try and think through that on your own, you might come to some sort of conclusion like, I am made in the image of God. I perceive the world in linear time. Therefore, God, who I am made in the image of, must also perceive the world in linear time. Sure. That would be a reasonable way to think about it. Yeah. But it is in deviation of orthodoxy, right? So to keep ourselves uh, in check, I suppose— it's helpful for us to look to theologians and people who are smarter and better read and, um, again, holier. And by that, I mean more spiritually mature than ourselves. And that sounds restrictive, but it's not. Uh, in Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, he has this great passage where he talks about if you were to take children and put them on an island in the sea, surrounded by steep cliffs— and you put a big fence around them, they will engage in the games that all children engage in, and they will run around and play and sing, and they will have joy playing there on that little island. But if you remove the boundary, and it's just these sheer cliffs that fall into the ocean, and you leave the children and come back, you will find them huddled together in the middle of the island, unable to move, let alone play joyfully. It is the boundaries of orthodoxy that lets us uh, enjoy the faith and enjoy life in a way that we couldn't do without those boundaries. Mm, so in other words, without the boundaries that Christ has set out for us, for the church, there can be no partaking or enjoyment within the church. Yeah, because um, if we have two people— and one of them is a Christian, and he uh, devotes himself to the Christian confession of three persons, one God, right? By doing this, he denies himself the ability to uh, worship Zeus, the ability to worship Dionysius, 
the ability to participate in Confucianism, Mm -hmm. the ability to uh, participate in the rituals of Judaism or Islam. He denies himself these things by choosing the Christian confession. Meanwhile, if we were to have an agnostic who's like, I don't really like labels, man. There's just like a higher deity. How is he ever supposed to legitimately participate in the rituals of Judaism or Islam or to worship Zeus or Dionysius or participate in Confucianism or anything else? He can't because he hasn't actually chosen something to adhere to, right? So what he ends up doing is nothing, right? And he ends up paralyzed because he hasn't made a choice. So by making the Christian confession and choosing one thing, electing the Christian confession over all the other confessions that are available to choose, you end up having greater liberty to participate in the religious and the spiritual life by doing that than if you were to be like vaguely agnostic and not choose something. Does that make sense? Is yeah, that fair? Absolutely. Um, you know, you and I happen to know someone who I whom I will not name for their sake, who kind of takes that approach at life. I, I know and to a faith. lot of people who take that approach. I think you know who in specific I, I I'm talking who you about. Mean, but I, yeah. I know I, I could count a dozen people on one hand. Yeah, but it, I, I, just thinking of this specific person, you know, they they really do take that approach of no choice is their choice, which in our opinion is the wrong choice because it's not a choice at all in that they, they hold to the idea that, well, I can take this from this religion and this from this mindset and this from this way of life and mash them all together. And that gives me the ideal way to live. And they claim that works for them and that makes them happy and that that's, that's good. But then I look at the way that they lead their life and, as someone who has found immense joy and freedom in the finished work of Christ, cannot possibly imagine that being the case. And, and oh, go ahead. It, I was just going to say it's it's a shame because that's not a unique thing. That's that's something a lot of people do. Yeah, and um, it is in many ways a spiritual colonialistic imperialism where you go in and that's a lot of titles (laughs) yeah but it is you go in to those far eastern reaches and you say that's a nice uh holy doctrine you got there as a buddhist i'll take that and put it in my spiritual museum yeah and then you go oh but that's a nice thing you guys got over here with your hinduism i'll take that and put it in my spiritual museum over here and you end up uh co-opting and uh i'm gonna use a a a light no-no word here you end up heavily bastardizing all of these religions and making your own thing that isn't any of them and by making your own thing that isn't any of them you end up with a nothing burger you end up with shenanigans and 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 a nothing burger provides you with nothing nothing. (laughs) and theology Good theology, biblical theology, is our uh, bulwark in defense against that. Because that friend 
who thinks that way, because we all know someone who thinks that way, will say, well, why do you choose the Christian God over the other gods? And a theologian can give you reasons for that. They can give you lots of reasons for that, well-thought-out reasons for that, thousands and thousands of pages worth of reasons for that. And I've read several thousands of those pages. And some of the reasons are very, very good. Right now, we don't have the time or the space to discuss any of those reasons, but perhaps we will some other day. Um, yeah, the theology is it's a barrier, and in that barrier, it is safety, and it provides us with the means to articulate our faith and articulate our experiences that we wouldn't have otherwise. Um, I mentioned at the start of this two particular ways that theology is often done. That is uh, biblical theology and um, – did I say the scholastic method? Or you did. I, yeah, the if scholastic I method. I believe you did, yeah. Um, that's what I was describing with syllogisms and the philosophical approach to doing theology – it's scholasticism. But there's a third way of doing theology, and that's um, contemplative theology. The Eastern Orthodox Church, insofar as I understand it, is big on this. And what I mean by that is that you take something like a part of Holy Scripture or a prayer, and you contemplate it and look for the truths about God that are within it. Um, for example, there's a prayer that has been recited by millions upon millions of Christians for thousands of years, or well over a thousand years. I think it became popular in the 6th century. It's called the Jesus Prayer. It um, goes, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And if you were to be engaging in the contemplative kind of school of theology, you there are different ways to do it, but one way to do it is to take each word and think about it and draw out its essence. So, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus. We're going to think about Jesus for a little while. Um, in the Greek, Eosius. In the Hebrew, Yahshua, which I believe means God saves. Yes. Right? So we think about that. God saves. How does God save? Who does God save? Why does God save? Why does God save? What does when God save? When does God when save? When does God save? Yeah. You think about these things. You run down the list. Jesus Christ. Christ. What, is, what does, does this, Christ this is, mean? Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah, which is means anointed one. So what does it mean to be anointed? How is Jesus who is the Christ? Jesus is anointed. The one that God, who is God saving, is anointed, right? And he's appointed and he's, uh, what other things can be said? Uh, like the chosen one. Yeah. Right? He's the special one. Jesus Christ, God's Son, and He is 
true God of true God, begotten, not made. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Um, that is what it means to be God's Son, right? We think about that. We chew on it for a little while. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. Rather than what? Rather than mm-hmm. just judgment. Yeah. Does it compromise God's justice to have mercy on me? No, it does not. Why does it not? How does it not? Should it? Would God, would it be in better keeping with God's character for him to exact justice on me rather than have mercy on me? Yeah. Would I love God just as much if he had justice rather than mercy? Would I love God just as much if he were to condemn me rather than to save me? Because I should. Because he ought to. Yeah, and right. that's contemplative theology. Right, and then you get to uh, have mercy on me, a sinner, and then there are other versions where it's have mercy on me, the sinner. Yeah. And that little op- change of that um, article there, a sinner versus yes. the sinner. Like, in one, you're identifying with all the others who are like you, all of humanity, and the other, it is me and the creator of the universe and me and the creator of the universe alone. Right. And it's a, a beautiful thing and a powerful thing to run through something like that and engage in the contemplative uh, theology. Yeah. And you can do that with like the Lord's prayer. You can do that with any of the Psalms, the entirety of scripture, the entirety of scripture. And, but do you see how, all of these different ways of doing theology all have their merits. And you can, if you think about it, you can also see how they would all have their limitations too. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, we're just about out of time here. Um, I think we did pretty good with that though. Yeah. The, um, any questions, comments, or further considerations before we um, finish up? I thought it would be fun to ask a little question to close us out. Sure. Which is who is or who are some of your favorite theologians Mm. and what would you recommend reading to someone perhaps who has not partaken in the long history of theology? Mm. Um, I really like Irenaeus of Lyons. He wrote in the uh, late second century, so around 180 to 200, his book Against Heresies is great. I suggest books three and four because it's in a – or books three and five are the best ones. It's five books. Each one's about 100 pages. Um, so that's Irenaeus of Lyons, Against Heresies. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux is really good. Um, he wrote a commentary on the Song of Songs. He intended to do the entire book. He got about 80-something. Um, they're, they're done as like sermons or homilies. He had 80-something of them done by the time he died. He was up to, I think, the eighth chapter. <laughs> so, Bam. He had a lot to say about the Song of Songs, and some of it's very, very beautiful. Um, and he was writing around the year 1100. Uh Who else? 
Anselm of Canterbury is a great example of the scholastic methodology of doing theology. If you have the stomach for it, I suggest you read um, Cur Dies Homo, or Why the God-Man. He's always asking why Christ was incarnate. Yeah. Um, it's a difficult read, but it has some rewardingness to it. G.K. Chesterton is wonderful. Um, C.S. Lewis is also fantastic, and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is also great. So th- say, those are my suggestions. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is... Uh is one of my personal favorites, something I've actually, I've been on a bit of a Bonhoeffer role recently reading through some of his works. Um, I, I think Bonhoeffer is a better exegete yeah. than Chesterton and Lewis. I, I but will I think say, Chesterton and Lewis are better theologians than Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer can, can get a little dicey, uh, not because it's bad, rather, uh, I, I think of like Life Together by, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a very easy read. It's very accessible. It's very good. But then you look at something like The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which equally is fantastic. That's a heavy read. Very convicting. Very hard to get through at times. Um, perhaps not the best thing to start on. Yeah. Um, Mere Christianity is great. If you're just looking mm. to get into this sort of stuff, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton and Mere Christianity are both great places to jump in. Yeah. Uh, Orthodoxy is a bit more heady than Mere Christianity. Um, but yeah, those, those are both great. Um, yeah. Um, N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is, is also great. a great example of a modern theologian. Yeah, he's, he's contemporary. He's still kicking around, still alive. Um, maybe one of these days we'll get him to, to guest on the podcast. Uh, I doubt That's it. the dream. <laughs> um, Dr. Michael Bird is also a contemporary theologian. He's really good. Um, Dr. Preston Sprinkle, he, he's mm, done some, yep good work um and i think perhaps the greatest recommendation we can give is holy scripture itself and the authors there within bias of you yeah um, <laughs> I, I, I would have suggested like i don't know augustine of hippo or something but scripture's good too i mean uh, <laughs> augustine of hippo is good but holy scripture yeah, holy scripture is is better than Augustine. So there, there's perhaps tell, I was joking. Yeah. Um, there's but, perhaps some, some recommendations if you're interested in that kind of thing and you're not that familiar with it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. most of that stuff is available in the public domain because most of it is hundreds of years old. Um, the one exception would be, uh, N.T. Wright, Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer, and maybe Lewis. C.S. Lewis. I, yeah. Those might not be in the public domain yet. Um, anyway, that's the end of this episode. That's um, Theology 2. Theology Part 2. So if you liked this, please uh, give us a thumbs up and a subscribe. Maybe give us a five-star review if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or what have you. Um, it would really help us out, Let make it easier for other people to find us. Um, share us with a friend if you think that they would be interested. Or not. Or, you know, do what you want. I'm not your mom mm. or a cop. Yeah. Um, leave a comment. If you've got a question or comment to make, if you need to reach us for any other particular reason, you can reach us at theologyish at gmail.com. Yeah, if we got something wrong or you have a, a request for an episode or, or a business inquiry, you want to sponsor us, Raid Shadow yeah. Legends, sponsor. Raid Shadow Legends, I'm, I'm uh, here for it. Better help. This episode was oh, brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp's a big one. Look, you man. Know, if we start saying it's brought by BetterHelp, yeah. are they compelled to pay us? Maybe. I don't know. All I'm saying is I'll advertise almost anyone if they pay me enough money. I, I mean, I. 
I'm not going <laughs> to advertise like a gentleman's club. Maybe not. Or an alcohol company. Yeah. I, casinos. If you're not a licentious business, we will advertise for you. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Have a good night. Thanks. Bye. Yeah.